0: Well, this morning, uh, Pastor Joe is in the tropical paradise of Buffalo, New York, um, celebrating the 4th of July with his family, so uh, I get to be here and preach, and I'm so excited to just to be with you. But uh, last week, if you were here, you saw Pastor Joe made fun of my pink shirt, and so I wore the only other pink shirt that I had this morning, and uh, so I thought I'd preach in this pink shirt as well. Well. Happy 4th of July, and uh, today I'd like to go back in time, just a little bit back to the uh, really late 1800s, early 1900s. College football is just starting to become a thing. And there's a school that you've probably never heard of called the Carlisle Indian Industrial School. And the purpose of this school was to really help Native American people kind of join in the mainstream of America and help America grow. Now, whether this was noble or uh, wrong, I'm not really sure. But the Carlisle Indians decided that they needed a football team. So they got a football team together, and the school hired a coach. And the coach's name was Glenn Scooby Warner. Now, you may have heard of him more popularly as Pop Warner. So you hear of Pop Warner Football or Pop Warner Little Leagues. Uh, I played Pop Warner, but it was called uh, PMYC, and it was Little Brothers right over in Phoenixville. And so Pop Warner football, he was the coach. And what he realized right away about his team is that every single player on his team were about 20 pounds lighter than the lightest people on the other teams. And so most of the teams that were out there were Harvard or Yale or someone else. And here you have these really small Indian guys. So Pop Warner thought, I'm going to have to do something different with this team than I've done with other teams. And so he decided that the way he was going to win was by doing trick plays. And so he got really creative, even in the sense that he had a tailor sew some elastic pockets in the back of three of the players' jerseys on his team. And so one time they're playing Harvard University, and Harvard kicks the ball off to them. And one of the players on the Indian team catches the ball. Everyone comes around him and he stuffs it in the back pocket of the jersey of a fellow player. Then everyone breaks out of the huddle and they run down like they're carrying the football. And they get tackled except for the guy who has the football in his back shirt. He's running down the field free, gets in the end zone, pulls out the football and the crowd goes wild. Another time they thought, well, we're not doing so good so we need another edge. So they actually sewed football-shaped leather patches on their jerseys. And so everyone didn't know who had the football. Now, Harvard, who they're playing against, retaliated the next game by painting the football the same color as their jerseys. And then lastly, the, the pass was something new, and the one receiver who was the best, he kept getting pushed out of bounds. And so eventually, he just went out of bounds, ran down the sidelines, kind of threw the bleachers, came back out on the field, and caught the ball in the end zone for a touchdown. And they end up winning that game. And, and so they weren't breaking the rules because there weren't really rules around those things yet. But every year when Pop Warner came up with a new trick, the College Football Association, the next year would make up a rule and say, you can't do that. And then the next year they make up a rule and say, you can't do that and you can't do that. And that's kind of how we have the rules of football today based on part of what he did that they said, you can't do that now. Now, I think rules are a good thing. Right? They help keep stability and predictability and they make a lot of us feel safe. You know who you are, but some of you, you just love rules. You're like, this is black and white, this is how things go and I'm going to follow that. And if everyone would just follow it like I do, everything would be great. And there are some people in the Bible who really loved rules. As we look in Jesus' time, they were called the Pharisees. They were kind of the most religious or holy people and they didn't just love the rules, they were fanatics about it. Right, so when they got spices, they followed the Jewish law to a T where they would go into their spice drawer and they would take 10% of their spices and take that to the synagogue or the temple and give that there because they were just saying, we're going to follow the rule to a T. They loved the rules so much that actually say, here's the rule and now we're going to put rules around the rules So we never even get close to breaking this rule. And so that's what they were all about. And you would think that God would really love people who follow his rules really well. Except Jesus was actually the hardest on these guys out of anybody. Jesus was the hardest on these people who are really good at following the rules because he saw the heart behind why they were following the rules. See, their reason for following the rules, I think, went something like this, we're going to do A, B, and C, and if we do A, B, and C, then God has to do D. So they tried really hard to stay out of trouble, to not eat things that weren't clean, to try to follow every law to the very T, because they thought somehow that they could put God in their debt by following these rules. And the reason Jesus was so hard on them is because God's purpose in us following the rules isn't so that we're some kind of moral and really good people. See, God's heart behind the rules and the laws that he's put in place is to bring us close to him, to bring us into relationship with him. And these laws are kind of guidelines of what it means if you really love Jesus, if you really love God, to follow him. And so what we see throughout Jesus' whole life is that he explored the concept of God's grace or God's unmerited favor. That God kind of loved us so that we could love him. And so the big idea that I want us to get this morning is that God's grace helps us focus on our relationship instead of on the rules. And we're going to see a little bit why this is so crucial. And some of you just started to get a little bit nervous. Because now you're asking, wait, Andrew, are you going to say something like, God's so gracious we don't need to follow the rules and I'd say, you'll have to wait to see if that's what I say at the end. And this morning, what I really want to do is paint a picture of God's grace for us. So not so much prescribe what you should do, but more describe who God is. And out of that, we'll see how we should respond. So we're going to look in the book of Judges. We're in a series called Judges, Have It Your Way. And we're going to look at Judges chapter 6, and we're going to look at the guy of Gideon. So Judges chapter 6, and... Uh, You can turn in your Bible, your app. I'd love to have you do that. We'll also have it up here on the screen so you can follow along. But before we do that, let's pray and ask God to really uh, open our hearts. I love what, what Jeff said this morning, so let's pray that for us. God, thank you that you love us. Thank you that your love is bigger than all the things that we do wrong. I pray that this morning that our hearts would be open, that we would be expectant for you to speak to us. God, that you would become really large in our eyes and we would become small. Be with us as we look at the life of Gideon in your name. Amen. All right, Judges chapter 6, looking at Gideon. So here's, if you haven't been here in past weeks, let me explain to you what happens in the book of Judges. Basically, in the book of Judges, there's peace in the land, and then Israel starts to mess up and start to follow other gods. Then God sends a people group to oppress them or put them just in a really bad situation to the point where they have to cry out to the God, which is called, God's called Yahweh in the Old Testament. They're crying out to God. He raises up a deliverer. The deliverer rescues the people, and then there's peace in the land again. And this cycle just keeps going and going and going. And we're going to see how God's grace is in, in the story of Gideon. And we're going to look at kind of three aspects of God's grace this morning, and we're going to find Israel's in the same place they always are. So here's the first aspect of God's grace that we need to see, that God's grace causes him to help the unworthy. Causes him to help the unworthy. So starting in verse 1, it says, The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years God gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because of the power of Midian was so oppressive, The Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts and caves and strongholds. Whatever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites and Malachites and other eastern peoples invaded the country and they camped on the land and they ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle or donkeys. They They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts and it was impossible to count them or their camels." They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord God of Israel says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you out of the hand of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the God of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. So typically in the book, the people would cry out to God, and then God would send a deliverer and say, hey, I'm, I'm sending this deliverer. They're going to rescue you. Turn to me. Everything is going to be fine. But instead, he sends them a prophet. And what does the prophet say? The prophet reminds them that God has done all these amazing things. He brought them out of Egypt. He, he took them out of being slaves. He gave them the promised land. And then he kind of just ends with this condemnation. He says, but you have not listened to me. And so in, in typical thought, you would think, so now he's going to say, because you haven't listened to me, this is your punishment. But instead, the next 30 verses are about him raising up some kind of deliverer for Israel. So there's God's grace there. I think the problem with the Israelites that we see so many times is that they have this spiritual amnesia, right? God does all this amazing things and raises up someone, and then over time, they just kind of forget and forget and forget. And then they start worshiping these other gods, right? So so they would worship gods that kind of um, benefited them completely. So if they were farmers, they would worship idols or gods that were for the agriculture, and so they would kind of follow the rules of that religion to worship that God so that that God would bless them in their agriculture. Or gods of business. They would worship that God and sacrifice to that God so they bless their business. Or there are gods like Baal and Ashereth who, who are about sex and pleasure. And so they would turn away from the God of heaven to these gods to worship them over and over and over again. And for some reason... God continues to have grace for them, right? Even in in putting them in being oppressed with Midian, right, for those seven years, the reason God did that at all was to bring them back to himself. He said, you're not getting it. You don't pay attention to me. Let me put so much pressure on you that these idols aren't going to be able to save you and only I can. Man, we think, wow, God, that's awesome. Like, I'm so glad you did that, but But let's put ourselves in God's situation. Let's say someone comes to you and you know them and you may even love them. And they're saying, hey, I need your help and I need you to trust me. So you say, no problem. And you help them and you trust them. And then they go and they they disappoint you and do the things that they said they weren't going to do. And then a little while later they come to you again and they say, hey, you know what? I need your help. I just need you to trust me. And you say, okay, you let me down before, but I'm going to trust you. And then they let you down again. And they say, hey, I need you just to help me and trust me. And they let you down again. And they let you down again. At some point in that cycle, you're going to say, hey, you know what? I really love you, but but I just can't help you anymore. Like I know what's going to happen every time. And that's what God's grace is, isn't it? That even though we would give up on someone, he doesn't give up on us. He doesn't say, you know what? I've already helped you four times, Andrew. I can't do it again. No, he helps us even though we're unworthy, even though we don't get it. It really reminds me of when I got married and and the other day we're sitting in my living room and we paid a photographer a lot of money at our wedding to put together a wedding album for us, right? They took the pictures and it probably weighs 60 pounds. It's like this big black book in our living room. And somehow our daughter found it and my wife and her were going through the pictures and I started looking through the pictures and I had this thought. I said, Angela is one lucky woman. No, that's not the thought that I had. But what I really thought is, man, I don't deserve this amazing woman. There's so many times that I've messed up and I've failed and yet she loves me and she cares for me. And it's the same thing it is with God. That no matter how many times we've messed up. He still cares for us and helps us even though we don't deserve it. I think that's the first part of God's grace that we need to see, that even though people are unworthy, He still helps them. Now we're going to get to see how God's grace works in the people He chooses. So the next thing that God's grace causes them to do is to call the unqualified. That he calls the unqualified. So verses 11 to 24. Now we're actually going to look at Gideon himself. Not just Israel. We're at the big picture of Israel. Now we see Gideon. So here's Gideon. The angel of the Lord came and sat da- down under the oak of Orphra. That belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, Where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? Like, where are all these wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. And the Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Gideon replied, If I have now found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I'll wait until you return. Gideon went inside, prepared a young goat, And from an ephah of flour, he made bread without yeast, putting the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot. He brought them out and offered them to him under the yoke. The angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened bread, place them on this rock and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. Then the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread with the tip of his staff that was in his hand. And fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread. And the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Alas, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace. Do not be afraid. You are not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it, The Lord is Peace. And to this day, it stands in Ophrah of the Abazirites. So before we get into this passage more, there's something really confusing happening. And maybe you saw it. Uh, If you're an English teacher, you definitely saw it, or just somebody who's good at grammar. You saw over and over again, first the angel of the Lord comes to him. Then the Lord somehow speaks to him and turns to him. And then you have the angel of the Lord back, and the angel of God. And then the angel disappears, and then you just have the Lord still speaking to him. And you're like, does someone have multiple personalities? What's going on here? And so this happens a few times in the Old Testament, and what scholars think is that this is probably that Jesus in the form of a messenger an angel comes and he appears to people. So this is Jesus before he came to earth to give his life. This may be Jesus talking to him. So Gideon has this encounter face to face with God. And that's why he's so scared at the end because he's seen God's face right there. And so God was saying, man, Gideon, you're a strong warrior, and he's qualifying, but even Gideon knows that he's not qualified, right? First off, I love this, he doesn't get it. The prophet in the very beginning says, hey, guys, this is why God's doing this with Midian, and for some reason, Gideon still doesn't get it. So he's not the sharpest tool in the shed, right? He's still kind of disenfranchised and like, well, God, if you really are with us, then why are you doing this? And then another funny part in the text is that God comes up and he says, I'm with you, mighty warrior. Now what's Gideon doing at this moment? Gideon is actually hiding in a wine press, so kind of something that was, that was kind of cut out of a rock. He was down hiding, taking care of the wheat and probably looking around, making sure there weren't any enemies around him, right? Because he was scared. And then he says, well, God, How can you use me? I'm the youngest in my family, and our clan is the weakest in our whole tribe of Manasseh. And say you don't see this in this passage, but if you read on in Gideon's story, which we're going to do over the next couple weeks, we'll see that Gideon's brothers were probably killed by the kings of Midian up on Mount Tabor. And so Gideon's idea is saying, hey, listen, if my brothers who are faster and bigger and stronger couldn't defeat these guys, what makes you think that I can? But Gideon has some legitimate things to say, hey God, you know what? I'm not really qualified here. And then here's another shocking thing that you have to look into the text to find. the Gideon wasn't really a great follower of God. His dad kind of owns like the uh, the shrine of the town to these two gods, Baal and Asherah. Or Asherah. Right, so these are actually in his house. So his dad were big worshipers of these other gods, not Yahweh. He, he kind of followed God a little bit, but more all about these. And so God comes to this guy and says, listen, I want to use you. Now why would God choose this guy? Why would God choose us to use? And I think the truth is because we can't see the bigger picture that God is actually at work even though you're unqualified. Let's read verses 25 through 32. This is kind of the the big heroic moment of this chapter. Right, so after Gideon sees that, that this is God who talked to him, it says that same night the Lord said to him, take the second bull, this is kind of just another term for For a bull from your father's herd, one seven years old, tear down your father's altar to Baal, cut down the Asherah pole beside it, then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on top of this height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down after the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took ten of his servants and he did as the Lord told him, but because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. Right, so So we're seeing Gideon's cowardness still come out. He's still afraid. In the morning when the people of town got up, there was Baal's altar demolished and the Asherah pole beside it cut down and the second bull sacrificed in the newly built altar. They asked each other, who did this? When they carefully investigated, they were told Gideon, son of Joash did it. The people of the town demanded Joash, bring out your son, he must die because he has broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. But Joash replied to the hostile crowd around him, Are you going to plead Baal's cause? Are you trying to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by morning. If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. So because Gideon broke down Baal's altar, they gave him the name Jerubbaal that day, saying, Let Baal contend with him. See, see, Gideon might have been unqualified, but God had actually been working behind the scenes because look he actually has a uh, a moment of faith and he goes and even though it's at nighttime he still obeys right he still obeys he goes in he takes out this altar he builds a new one he kind of desecrates the site by sacrificing a bull on it and so it just so happened that this altar was in his backyard it just so happened that he had 10 guys who helped him do all this It just so happened that Gideon's name actually means to hack or it means a hacker or to cut something down. And so God used this guy who is named a hacker to hack down the altar in this place. See, God is at work already in Gideon's life and he can't even see it yet. And while it looks like he's unqualified, God's the one who qualifies him. But getting just keeps coming up with more excuses, right? And we're going to see more excuses and more excuses from saying, I can't do this because I'm this or this or this. And sometimes that mirrors our lives, doesn't it? Sometimes God asks us to do something and we say, you know what, God? I'm not really smart enough. Why don't you pick someone who's smarter? You know, I'm not, I'm not really, uh, I don't really have the strength. I haven't been a Christian long enough. So why don't you let someone who's more experienced do that? Or how about this one? God, you know, I'm not really in your good graces right now. I've kind of been sinning a lot and kind of been trying to run away from you. This is not really the time for you to use me. Gideon had excuses and we have excuses, but but here's where our excuses and Gideon's excuses run out. Because God said something to Gideon that changes everything. He said, I will be with you. Two times, actually, not just once, but twice. He said to Gideon, I'll be with you. See, when God's with us, it gets rid of all our our excuses and our times where we say, I'm not qualified, because God said, I'm with you. And especially today that God has sent his Holy Spirit into our lives, he says, I'm with you. I'll make up for where you can't do things in your own power. I'll be close to you. Because most of us, even on our best days, we're not qualified. Maybe you've seen the movie uh, Catch Me As You Can you ever seen Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hanks? And it's about this guy named Frank Abagnale, And Frank is a con artist, kind of starts when he's 15 years old, and just works in bigger and bigger cons. And so he convinces people that he's an airline pilot, right? He's actually flying on airplanes. He convinces people that he's a doctor. He actually convinces people he's a lawyer. Somehow he passes the bar exam. He convinces people that he's a teacher. And in reality, he had no qualifications for any of these things And yet people believed him. So like I said, even on your best day, you're not qualified to do what God asks you to do. And yet, he said, I'll be with you and I'll help you. And that's where his grace comes in. That we're not qualified, but he calls us anyways and he uses us. And so we've seen God's grace that he helps the unworthy and he calls the unqualified. Let's look at the last part of God's grace that we see in Gideon's story. Verses... 33, and it starts in verse 33, and what God's grace causes them to do is be faithful to the faithless. Verse 33, it says, now all the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. So just think about this, in the east is this large horde, this large army getting ready for battle, and then you have Israel. And it says the spirit of the Lord came on Gideon and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abizirites to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, calling them to arms, also into Asher and Zebulon and Naphtali, so that they too went up to meet him. And then Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, look, I will place a wolf fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry around it, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose up early the next morning. He squeezed the fleece, wrung out the dew. A bowl full of water came out. Then Gideon said to God, do not be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece, but this time make the fleece dry and let the ground be covered with dew. And that night God did so. Only the fleece was dry and all the ground was covered with dew. So I just want to paint the picture because we don't always get this when we read it. So here's Gideon. Spirit of God's on him. He just blew the trumpet and now he has 32,000 Israelites around him to go to battle. He heard clearly, not, not like... In some, from somewhere else, but he heard directly from God that said, you're going to go out and win this battle. And what does Gideon do? Hey God, you know what, I just want to make sh- I just want to double check that I heard from you. Like I know you showed up face to face and I thought I was going to die because I saw you, but I just, I just want to be really sure. And sometimes we, we read this passage and we say, okay, so this is how we communicate with God, right? We kind of, we'll, we'll lay down a fleece and say, God, if you really said this to me, then, then would you just confirm it again? And we think, like, this is the way that we, we communicate with God. But in the text, it's actually saying this is ridiculous. There's no way that he should need to hear from God again. Like It's very clear that God spoke to him. And yet, he says, God, I just need to hear from you one more time. And I had this thought, what happened if God didn't do it? Like we say, hey guys, you know what? I know 32,000 of you came from a long way away, but just go home. You know, we'll just let them beat up on us again. Like what is he thinking? And some scholars even think putting out this fleece, like he did in asking God to work through nature and then against nature, is kind of a way that you would test one of the idols to see if they're real. And yet in spite of all of that, God still responded to Gideon. He still said, I'm going to be faithful, even though you're faithless. Even though maybe you only have the tiniest drop, I'm still going to be there. I'm still going to be working. You know, what? we get to hear the end of this story, and we'll we'll kind of hear the end of this story next week. But man, it's no wonder if, if God came to Gideon face to face, and still didn't have enough faith. It's not surprising to me that in Matthew 17, 20, Jesus said, the greatest amount of faith you need to ask a mountain to move from here to there is a mustard seed. Because I think God knows who we are. That we're not getting it right and it's hard for us to have faith sometimes and yet he's shown us over and over again that he can be trusted and at the same time, even when we're faithless, he's faithful. He's faithful for me, I really identify with a guy in the New Testament who he said, Jesus, I want you to heal my daughter, and here is his response. He said, I believe you can do what Jesus now, help my unbelief. I believe, but I need you to help me believe. See, God's faithful to us, even in the times where we're faithless. I realized this when I was young, but there were times when I was younger When I'd be running away from God, when I'd say, yes, I know I'm supposed to follow God, but I kind of want to do my own thing now. And what happened? That God kept calling me back to himself, and he kept running after me and chasing me, and I said, God, why don't you just forget about me? But you know what I saw? He was being faithful, even in those moments where we're faithless. See, that's where God's grace is, isn't it? His grace is there even when we're not getting it right. See, see, well, the meaning of grace is this: that it's unmerited favor. That it's nothing you and I ever deserved. And see, I think the rules and the laws and, and the things that God had put in place, they're good. But it's kind of the reason why you obey them is because you say, I know what's right and what's wrong. I think you're never gonna be good enough. Because here's the truth. We don't do what we think is right just because there's right and wrong. The reason why we obey something, the reason behind our actions is by what we love. And that's why God's grace is so much more about a relationship than it is about the rules. Because what you love, what you give your affection towards is really going to shape how you behave and how you live. And so we, follow the things that God asks us to do not because we're somehow gonna get God in our debt and say man God I did these things now bless me no we do it because of our love for him and the first time that I heard this kind of message about God's grace which sounds a little ridiculous I had this thought and maybe you have this thought this morning I don't know hey wait a minute if God's grace is so good then what's the point of even following the rules? Right, like if God's grace is so much for me, then it doesn't really matter what I do, does it? Because God's going to kind of still love me. It's a little bit of a scary thought. And I'd say, if that's where you're at today, if your reaction to God's grace is, well, I'm so glad for God's grace, now I can do what I want. I'd probably ask you to evaluate your relationship with God. I'd say, is your relationship about loving God or is it about kind of following the rules and there's some kind of transaction happening? Because when you love someone, when you love God, you don't obey the rules because you're afraid something's gonna happen to you. You obey them because you love that person because you're doing it in response to what they've done for you. So even though God's grace is there for us, it's about our response and about us loving Him, not about us trying to get things right all the time. You know, I, I want to share this quote earlier, but I'll I'll share it now. It was said by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, by his biographer Eric Metaxas, said this: "Being a Christian." Is less about cautiously avoiding sin than about courageously and actively doing God's will. That being a Christian is less about cautiously avoiding sin than about courageously and actively doing God's will. God's grace is there for us. And so our response to our love for Him is to do what He wants because we have that love. So what I really want for you as you leave this place this morning is not to go out and say, man, I'm awesome, or I'm great, or I'm a rainbow, or I'm a unicorn. I don't want you going out of here saying, man, I just feel so good about myself. See, I don't want you to feel great about yourself. I want you to be grateful to God for all that he's done for you this is why continually every time I preach to you I want to tell you this that the gospel that the good news of Jesus is not just for when you didn't know Jesus and you became a follower of Jesus the gospel is for us every single day because what the gospel says is that you and I were not worthy of his help that we're not qualified that we're faithless and yet in face of all of that God loved you enough to give his life for you through his son Jesus Christ That's why the gospel is for us every day, because it reminds us how much we need God. And in knowing that frees you. It frees you from feeling condemnation, because you say, I know I'm not getting it right, and God, I need you to change me, but you love me anyways. See, when Jesus died on the cross, what happened is that his blood covered over our sins. And so when God doesn't look at us, he He doesn't say, when God looks at us, he doesn't say this, he doesn't say, well, Andrew's doing about a four out of 10 today. No, he sees Jesus' righteousness in our place. And we can have a relationship with him and this is why the gospel matters in our life every single day. So how to respond to this beautiful picture of God's grace. I think this morning I can think of two ways. The first one is this is that we would repent from not being Christ-like. Say, God, I love you. Jesus, I love you. I want to be like you. Help me. Help me to turn away from the things that aren't like you. And I think the second response is just worship. Say, God, you are good. And you are loving, and I need you. And this morning, we're going to sing together. But before we do that, you have an orange card. Why we're we're worshiping God this morning, I think a great response is just to write down one way God's been gracious to you and thank him for that. And so Jeff is gonna play a song, Lord, I Need You. If you wanna stand, feel free to stand. If you wanna sit, feel free to sit. But we're just gonna worship God together in this moment to say thank you for your grace. Help me to live it out.